And that terrific music is courtesy of a very, very talented bluegrass folk rock band called Trampled by Turtles. What a great name and what talented musicians. Uh, and we are talking today with a member of Trampled by Turtles, mandolin player Eric Berry, because Trampled by Turtles is going to be coming to southeastern Wisconsin for an appearance on Sunday, September 1st, for the Labor of Love Music Festival, a major fundraiser for the Just Live organization uh, to lift up the issue of, of suicide prevention. And uh, I have already heard from all kinds of Facebook friends who are huge fans of Trampled by Turtles and are so excited about their upcoming visit. And I'm excited to speak with Eric Berry, who is a charter member of Trampled by Turtles since their uh, creation back in 2003. He joins us from tele- by the telephone. Eric Berry, we welcome you to the morning show. Hi, good morning. I am really, really happy to be uh, speaking with you. I know the group is based in Duluth. Is that where you're uh, speaking from this morning? Uh, yes, it is. Tell me a little bit, first of all, about where you come from originally. Is Duluth your original stomping grounds? Uh, actually, uh, I'm the only member of the band who is not from Minnesota. I'm from uh, southern Wisconsin myself. I'm from Verona, which is a Madison suburb. Yeah, right. Very good. Tell us about what life was like in Verona and at what point music started to become an important part of your life. Uh, it was. I don't remember it not being a part of my life. Uh, my parents, uh, to their credit, but I always phrase it like I resent it, um, made me take piano lessons before I can remember starting to do that. Um, and... Uh, one of the really wonderful things about Verona was it had a great uh, music program in the high school, so it was um, it was very easy for me to uh, like challenge myself and push myself with opportunities uh, before I even graduated from high school. What did you do instrumentally uh, aside from the piano? At what point did the mandolin enter the picture for you? Uh, the mandolin is my last instrument that I acquired, um, and that was in uh, that was about twenty years ago. Um, I, I played uh, viola and saxophone and oboe within the school program, uh, and I played guitar. I played jazz guitar with the school program too, and I also and guitar really uh, was a big focus for me. I, I entered college as a classical guitar major, and for one reason and another, that didn't really pan out for me. But one of the opportunities that I got from that was I started playing electric bass in bands. Uh, other musicians would be like, hey, hey, Barry, it turns out, turns out our bass player can't make Friday's gig. Can you learn these songs? And sure, I'll do that. That sounds like fun. And that was a lot of fun. Um, and when I first picked up a mandolin, I was interested in no longer being the seventh person with a guitar at a campfire, <laughs> is what, <laughs> what my motivation was. Um, and what I discovered was 
a lot of the stuff I'd learned how to do and was interested in doing and loved doing on guitar and bass, I could do on mandolin with, without interfering with other guitar players or bass players, if that makes sense. Um, <laughs> I could play bass lines on it, but it was so high in the register that it, 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 didn't, it wasn't bass lines anymore. Right. So um, it added its own little color to the texture. Uh, absolutely. And, you know, in the late 90s, there weren't a lot of them floating around. Um, I know for a fact that the first time I played mandolin in public was at a, a college house party in Moorhead, Minnesota in 1998, and I had a friend playing banjo, and we were not very good. <laughs> I, I, we were not, and if we'd been two guitar players at that party playing at that caliber, people would have told us to stop. But um, instead, we had an entire room entranced, and I'm certain it's because they'd never seen mandolin or, mandolins or banjos live in their lives. Hmm. Before I uh, ask you a little bit about Trampled by Turtles specifically, I'd love to hear a little more about the instrument of the mandolin and how it relates to the guitar. I mean, uh, how transferable is the technique of the, the, the more common instrument, the guitar, uh, to its rare cousin, the mandolin? I mean, is it, it, it very much in the same ways, thing? It's, it's, a, it's very similar. They both trace their roots back to the, the lute in, the, in the, like the Renaissance era, but the guitar has six strings, and they're sing- it's, it's what's called, called a single-coursed instrument, so there's only one E string, for example. The mandolin has got eight strings, but it's four pairs of strings. So what, I, like the lowest note open string on a mandolin is a G. I don't think of, think of it as playing two G strings when I play that, that string, that, and I just used it as a singular word. Um, hmm. But there are two of them. It's, it's kind of like a 12-string guitar in that regard, but the strings are in unison. And the mandolin is tuned exactly like a violin, or the guitar is tuned, it's, it's tuned differently. So the fingerings are all completely different then? Fingerings are completely different. The techniques otherwise are the same. Like when I first started playing mandolin, I knew how to fret a note. I knew how to hold a pick, um, but I had to learn the fingerings. And I quit playing guitar forever. <clears throat> when on, I don't remember if I was playing guitar or mandolin, but I played the wrong fingerings on the instrument, and I was just like, this is too confusing. I'm only ever playing this one. <laughs> ah, and you picked the mandolin. Which I is, picked the mandolin. Which is a much smaller instrument, of course. How tricky is that? I mean, how much does it feel like very, not just specifically different fingerings, but also the fact that you're, in a sense, I, I should think, using your hand in kind of a different way than, than you would on, on the larger instrument, the guitar? Uh, to be honest, it's something I don't even notice anymore, so I, I don't feel like I can speak really intelligently about that. I will say this, that when I'm having a really good night and I'm feeling like everything's just, everything I want to do, I'm doing, uh, my hands feel even bigger, <laughs> <laughs> which, is, which is a completely mental phenomena, but uh, obviously at a certain point it's like, yeah, this isn't too small. <laughs> We're speaking with Eric Berry, who is the mandolin player for a fine bluegrass group called Trampled by Turtles, who are going to be appearing here in southeastern Wisconsin on Sunday, the 1st of September, at the Labor of Love Music Festival out in uh, New Munster. So, tell us about your road into Trampled by Turtles, and it sounds like you were there right from the beginning. Uh, Tell us the story of how this wonderful group was put together. Well, um... It's, we started up in Duluth, Minnesota, and we st- we started as a 
four-piece, and currently we have six members. Uh, nobody's ever left, though, um, so the original four guys are still there. Wow, and I can't, I can't tell you how rare it is to hear that. Uh, so yeah. That, so that's cool. How did the four of you know each other or find each other? How was it that you were all in Duluth at the time? Uh, so two of the guys went to Duluth to go to school, to, to, to UMD, to University of Minnesota Duluth. Um, and then the other two of, of us, myself and our bass player, Tim Saxog, we actually moved up there to, to play music. Um, our, our, Tim and my stories are a little different, but at the end of the day, it's, uh, we had the opportunity to join bands that were based out of Duluth, and so we, we took that opportunity and moved up to do that. Uh, our banjo player, Dave Carroll, moved up to go to school, and so did our lead singer and guitar player, uh, Dave Simonette. And Dave was in a band that was playing a lot. Dave Simonette, I should say. Uh, and Tim was in a band that was playing a lot, and I was in a band that was playing a lot. Uh, and I actually played bass in that band. Um, and so we knew each other through that experience. You know, our bands would play bills together. The first time I ever met um, Dave Simonette, uh, he and his... Uh, the league, I think it was the no, it was the drummer in his band. They came out to watch our band play because we had a weekly gig on Thursdays and he had a weekly gig on Thursdays, and they had a Thursday off. So they were like, "Well, let's check out the other Thursday night band," <laughs> and they introduced themselves to us at set break, which was pretty fun. And we wound up jamming a few songs together that night. And there's a there's an old, that's from 2001, and there's an old photo floating around of that, which is pretty cool. Because um, that really is the beginning in many respects. In, well, I think Dave and Tim might have played together even earlier than that. But when when what became Trampled started rolling together, a few different things were happening. One of them was that uh, I had uh, rediscovered my, like, kind of literally discovered my mandolin, because I didn't really play it when I moved up to Duluth, because I was focusing on playing bass in this band and doing some other stuff. So I was playing it again and looking to play it with somebody. Dave Simonette actually had his electric guitar stolen, and so by default was focused on doing acoustic stuff. And Dave and Tim had been put together in a special project that a, uh, a local... Uh, uh, a local guy who owned Pizza Luce had put together for his birthday, and they had discovered they could sing together very well. And then Dave Simonette and I had played a couple of duo shows, and Dave Carroll, our banjo, saw one of the banjo player, saw one of those, and came up and introduced himself to us and said, "I play banjo, and I was hearing banjo parts in my head to you guys." So you know, kind of these different things are happening. You know, like three of us are like friendly with each other. Uh, Dave's looking to do something acoustic. I'm looking to play mandolin. Dave Carroll's looking to play banjo with somebody. And Dave Simonette and Tim Saxog had discovered that they sing together really well. <laughs> and this is all kind of happening in the summer through the fall of 2002. Right. So it's and, just like the the timing was propitious for all of you. You're all in the right time and the right place to just kind of come together. Pretty much, you know, and there really isn't like a, I mean, like, I remember the moment that Dave Carroll came up to Dave Simonette and I and said, hey, guys, let me give you my phone number. I play banjo. Please call me. But, and, and, and I don't want to take anything away from that moment, but it's not particularly dramatic either. You know what I mean? <laughs> and, and they're all kind of like that. It's just a really natural, like, 
oh, we should, you know, I know a guy who plays bass, and he can sing really well. Let me call him. Like, oh, it's Tim? I know Tim. Tim's great. You know, that kind of thing. Right. <laughs> so it's not like the clouds parted and the angels were singing. Uh, it just sort of happened. And it, here you are all these years later still together. Right. And even the way the other two guys joined is very much like that. Uh, you know, we played a couple of gigs with a band called Pertinier Sandstone, and their fiddle player, Ryan Young, uh, Dave asked him to play with him at a couple solo shows. And then when we wound up doing a show together, we're like, hey, Ryan, you want to jam with us? And it worked out that Pertnier and Trample did shows together off and on for a couple of years because we're both from Minnesota. And then we kind of we kind of poached him away from them. But, <laughs> you know, um, that's how he joined. And we did a tour with a band that had a cello player named Eamon, and Eamon McLean. And Ryan was trying to play a cello part on one of our songs, um, you know, in 2012 on our record, uh, Stars and Satellites, for the song alone. And he's like, I just can't do it. We should call this cello player we met last year. Like, okay, give him a call, you know. And then that guy wound up, you know, hanging out with us. And he was a great fit. So, like, all six of us have kind of joined, like, in a very similar way. Like, I know a guy. He's good. Right. You know? What would you say are the characteristics in terms of, well, both as musicians, but also in terms of personality that have made the chemistry so good? I mean, what is it that you sort of share in common, or is it more that you are kind of a set of, of harmonious contrasts to one another? I mean, how would you explain the wonderful chemistry of Trampled by Turtles? Musically, it's almost impossible to explain the chemistry. Um it's definitely there. <laughs> it's I notice it especially when I'm tr- just trying to practice without any of the guys. You know, like it is really hard to like just play the mandolin part for wait so long and mean it when it's just me. If that makes any sense. Yeah. And it's really hard to just phone in that part when the whole band is playing. Hmm. Like the chemistry, the musical chemistry is just is just there. Hmm. And it's it's really hard to quantify and it's really hard to describe and you know different different positive musical chemistry exists with other people but when it's the six of us it's definitely something unique and special off stage you know we're all pretty laid back we're all pretty quiet we're all pretty friendly i mean we're no one we're not you know identical to each other but we definitely get along with each other really well and uh you know, we used to have a joke about you could tell when someone's getting stressed out on tour because they come become super polite. <laughs> Instead of like, hey, man, could you hand me that bottle of water? It's like, excuse me, could you please hand me that bottle of water, please? <laughs> you know, it's like, uh-oh, what's eating Eric? <laughs> <You know? laughs> I like that. So, so here you are together all these years later, and obviously – not tired of it and the fact that the uh, original four are still there and for by by all indications just as happy and just as excited as you were back in 2003 how do you explain that because even the nicest people and most talented people in the world aren't necessarily happy being with the same group over a length of time like that well we did take a 19-month hiatus um that we came off of in May of 2018 that we went on in October of 2016. Uh, We did have to spend some time apart. It did get to a point where I think probably because by 
are all of our natures. We don't really, we, we are quiet and we are easygoing and we are, are all kind of like, hey, whatever you want is fine with me, you know, like, you know, preferring to leave from behind, I suppose. No one really knew how to talk about, you know, scheduling issues or being around each other too much issues that were starting to rear up until it all just kind of broke loose. And yeah, we didn't, we didn't, we didn't even hang out in the same room together for a year. Um, there was really no horrible acrimony, but it wasn't. It wasn't a unanimous, consensual decision to do that. Hmm. Interesting. So we did go through some stuff. Uh, one of the things that we learned from it is like it's cool to talk about how you're feeling. <laughs> you know what I mean? Hmm. Um, it's and 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 one of the things that since we started playing again in May 2018 is we're not saying yes to every gig that comes our way. Um, we are just like six months out pointing to a month on a calendar and being like, unless Neil Young's calling, we're just going to pretty much take that month off, you know? Mm. Um, Taking time to breathe. <laughs> yeah. You know, like, and it was, it was a lesson that we had to learn kind of the hard way, but other bands have learned it a much harder way. So mm. I'll still take it. Um, right. But yeah, there, there, it, you know, it hasn't been without drama. <laughs> well, that's, uh, that's uh, healthy and understandable. Uh, in our, Closing couple of minutes, could you just say a word about uh, what I understand to be Trampled by Turtles' intention to to be a part of events that are meaningful beyond just great music? Like, for instance, this Labor of Love music festival coming up on September 1st, uh, which is actually uh, to lift up the theme of, of suicide prevention. It sounds, uh, from what I've been told, like it, it is important to you guys not only to... Uh, play fun concerts and, and make money and enjoy each other, but uh, also to make a difference somehow. Well, it, it, part of that is part of that is you know I think as human beings we all kind of have a responsibility to do good when we have the opportunity and when you're you know one of the things that you don't really know about until you until you it happens to you is that when you're in a a, a band such as this people do ask you for that you know and and it, it kind of opens your eyes to like oh geez you know like there's some opportunities here um frankly we could play a benefit show every day every concert we ever play because there, there's enough of them out there to do it so unfortunately we do have to be kind of picky and choosy um but you know an event like this seems important and it's also kind of a unique We've never really been asked to be part of a fundraiser like like this exactly to, to deal with like suicide prevention and awareness, um, and the fact that it was close to home over Labor Day weekend helped a lot too. Sure, well, yeah, I know <laughs> I know a lot of people are really excited and pleased that you're going to be a part of this, and I would certainly be remiss before I let you go if I didn't ask you where this wonderful name comes from, <laughs> trampled by turtles. Uh, well, I'm actually the one who thought of that and suggested it, uh, and it was suggested as a way to make a more traditional-sounding band name more palatable. Um, <clears throat> now I think people think differently, but in 2003 we kind of felt like, well, playing this music, we really should probably have a name like Valley or River or Boys or Mountain or all four of them in the same name. <laughs> <laughs> and it just wasn't we didn't like it it just really wasn't our personality and i was like well we could be called something like trampled by turtles 
and I was like, oh, I'd much rather be called that than anything else. So uh, it's 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 stuck, and it's definitely been good to us. Uh, a, f- a fun little fact about that is after we agreed to call ourselves that, I Googled it to make sure that it wasn't some other band's name. Mm. And it was not. But all the hits in 2003 were about a uh, coral reef uh, support group out in Hawaii that was documenting the damage done to coral reefs. And a lot of it's done by boats and other sorts of human interference, but some of it is done by giant sea turtles that will scratch themselves on coral. Ah. And they're so heavy that they'll crush it and wreck it, but it's kind of considered acceptable damage because it's a natural phenomena. Anyway, that damage was labeled as trampled by turtles. Um, <laughs> but not, now, not that it's funny. Up, I mean, not that it's funny, but <laughs> but, it, 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 but, but it, it is funny, you know. <laughs> like, and um, unfortunately, now we've made it hard to find that group's research. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Well, I guess that's another benefit you'll have to play. But in the meantime, first you need to. Uh, play this upcoming benefit, uh, the uh, Labor of Love Music Festival on Sunday, uh, September 1st, uh, uh, out in uh, New Munster. And uh, and then you have uh, other Wisconsin dates coming up that we'll uh, tell our listeners about as well. And you guys have a website where uh, people can learn a little bit more about you and can seek out your, your wonderful recordings. And uh, Eric Berry, mandolin player for Trampled by Turtles, I really appreciate you taking time to uh, speak with me on the morning show today. This has really been fun. Thank you so much, and best wishes to you and the rest of your great group. Well, thank you, Greg. I wish you the same. And for more information about the Labor of Love Music Festival coming up this Sunday, September 1st, featuring Trampled by Turtles, you can go to the website justliveinc.org. That's justliveinc.org. You're listening to The Morning Show on WGTD. I'm Gregory Berg. We finish out today's morning show by talking about the ferociously competitive struggle to gain admission to the most prestigious colleges and universities in the country. When one is interested in gaining admission to a place like Harvard or Yale or Princeton or Notre Dame or any other number of top-tier schools, it is simply not sufficient to have a high grade point average and impressive test score results One must also demonstrate outstanding skill in extracurricular activities and demonstrate outstanding work in the community. One resource that a number of high school students across the country have made use of uh, is called Project Merit, which was created more than two decades ago by a California educator named Susan Tatsui Darcy, who, by the way, this year was named California Mother of the Year. She's just written a book called Beat the College Admissions Game with Project Merit, which spells out all that this resource has to offer to a high school student wanting to create a truly meaningful and impressive community project. I began my interview with Susan Tatsui Darcy by asking her to explain just how competitive the world of college and university admissions has become. 
Well, when you're looking at really selective colleges like the ones you named, there's about 200 of them. Then, you know, they're 4%, 5% acceptance rate for Stanford and Harvard, Princeton. So it does get crazy. It gets ridiculous that you, um, that students can't get in or can't even be, it's not even considered a, a target school if you have a 4.6 GPA, a perfect SAT or ACT score, and you're the MVP of the football team. You know, it's just, you can't be, it's not a guarantee. And, but that's only for the 200, 400, maybe 400 colleges. There's 4,000 colleges in the United States, and many of them are clamoring to get students. So, so they're advertising, they're out seeking students to attend their universities. And some universities are actually closing because there isn't enough, they don't have the students that they need to fill their spaces to stay open. Right. It's such so a college. Yeah, it's such a strange scenario in which you have some of these. This this one kind of school uh, in which the name is so well known and uh, the, the thought of going there is so desperately coveted by so many that they are in that one scenario. And then you are, of course, exactly right. There are many perfectly fine colleges and universities who are, in a sense, on the other end, uh, struggling. And then, of course, plenty of schools happily somewhere in, in the middle, in, in, a, in a place of a little more normalcy. But uh, we're talking about uh, a really confusing uh, situation. Um, explain to our listeners this thing that I mentioned briefly, which is not the primary focus of this interview, but I think we might as well just talk about it uh, briefly. Uh, this huge scandal that has kind of rocked the world of of college admissions and uh, involved several high-level Hollywood celebrities who have engaged in some some fraud uh, for which they're going to dearly pay a price. Um, for anyone who has not followed that scandal, what kind of what what are we talking about here in terms of the kind of misdeeds uh, that have been brought to light? Well, it's still unfolding. I mean, every week we're finding new, new, you know, new situations. But basically, what we're looking at is our parents who are so desperate to get their children into name-brand colleges that they bribe SAT coaches, um, SAT proctors, so their students can go into a room to take a test, and they either change the answers to give them better scores, or they allow people to take their students' place in the um, in the in the actual test itself. So somebody else is taking the test who can get a higher score. They're bribing coaches um, to say that they're that this particular child is the best in the country, and we should accept the student to our college so that they can be on our team. When in fact, these students don't even play the sport. You know, they don't know how to sail or play tennis or whatever the sport is. And it's 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 gotten ridiculous because what, what the bottom line is what's happening is parents are are bribing, they're cheating, they're um, they're just. They're using their power, their money and their power and their celebrity status to get their kids into college, but they're not getting their kids into these colleges for their children. They're getting their kids into college for themselves. And that's the really sad part is they're doing it because they themselves are insecure about their kids or they're insecure themselves where they have to boast about their children going to a particular college and that that means that much that they would actually destroy their own children's self-esteem because the children of those parents who are in the who are, who've done the scandalous deeds are the ones who are, are really, really suffering because they know that their parents don't believe in them. Their parents don't have the time for them to help them build their skills or build their, you know, their academic prowess so they can go out and, and enter these colleges on their own merit. It's, it's such a, 
a devastating thing for the kids. I feel so sorry for those children of these parents because the parents, and I can, we can segue into the, the reason we're having this interview, if the parents would have put their energy and their money and their celebrity into a project with their children, their children would get into the top universities. They'd even get scholarship money. And their kids would be able to stand tall and be proud of who they are because they did something that mattered. Mm. So when these parents have these deep pockets and they're spending a million dollars to get their kids into an Ivy League college, instead of spending that million dollars that's going to destroy your child's self-esteem, let's put that behind a project. Like, let's say your child decides that this, you know, this fire in this huge, huge fire that's happening in Brazil right now in the Amazon rainforest is awful, and we need to stop this, kind of like Leonardo DiCaprio just put $5 million down for this. And these parents with these deep pockets say, you know, they help their kids understand the, devast- you know, the, the devastation that we're going to feel as a civilization when we lose 20% of our oxygen to this rainforest fire. And the kids go out there and they go do something, and they take that money and say, you know, I'm going to spend a million dollars to do this, this, and this. That would be a project because it's something that they care about. It's something that they do on their own. Their parents, I'm not saying the parents should go do this or hire somebody to do it. The parents should support their children and saying, yeah, let's go down there. Let's figure out what's going on. How can we support these indigenous people so that they can protect the rainforest and we can all survive? You know, mm. just really basic things. Absolutely. So support their child with a project, with the guidance, and with the money. If they want to put money into something to, to you know, really... To, to pave the way for them to get into college, that would be an ethical and a great way to do this because their children come out on top, the colleges come out on top, we as a civilization come out on top, so it's a win-win-win all the way around if they're going to use their money in some fashion as opposed to using it to cheat or bribe or buy a building on the college campus. Right. Uh, before we get to Project Merit, I w- I'd like you to explain when somebody, uh, when a young person applies to a place like Stanford or Harvard or Yale or you know, the, the kind of schools that we are talking about. Uh, how do these kind of projects uh, or extracurricular participation, how does that figure into the admissions process versus a young person's academic record? Uh, I mean, how are these things, how do they tend to figure into the computations that a given university's admissions program will 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 uh, engage in in order to make uh, the difficult choices that they have to make? Good question. Your GPA is the most important important part of your application. So if you have an application, you put in your, you, you list your GPA and you list your SAT or ACT score. Those are those are two scores that are heavily weighted in the admissions process. The next thing that comes into line is the is what you do. Who are you and how did you take advantage of your school or your community? What have you done to show us that you have this passion, you have integrity, that you've got persistence, that you've got what it'll take to be successful at our really, really highly esteemed university and then go out after you're done with us here into the world and do something where we can say you're one of our alums. So it's, it's, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a question that the student needs to ask himself is, you know, playing in a band in my high school when there's a hundred thousand kids in the country doing this, am I going to stand out? You know, I've got a 4.6 GPA, I've got a perfect SAT score and there's thousands, tens of thousands of kids in that same boat. So if they're all out there, how do I differentiate myself? If I'm, if I'm playing basketball or baseball or a dance or do something, how many other kids are out there doing the same thing that I'm doing? 
when the kid does a project, they are the CEO and founder of their nonprofit or their business that they start. They are the patent holder for their device that they engineer. They are the author, published author of the books that they write. Uh, they public speak. They, they speak for TED. I, we're doing a TED in two weeks, and we've got all of our kids going up with their projects, talking about their what they've done. And it's an incredible way for the colleges to look at this and go to TED and just you know type TED and type in the name of the student and see that they spoke at a TED conference. It looks wonderful on your application. Way better than you know doing something where you know like Eagle, Eagle Scout is a great great honor. But how many Eagle Scouts are there out there? And the projects that the Eagle Scouts do is actually required. You know, so if it becomes required, just like a project at school is required for a grade, then it loses steam in the admissions process because they see that you did it, which is great, and they like it, but there's a lot of people doing it. And the way that Project Merit separates the kids out from all their peers is that they're the only ones doing this. And when I help the students figure out what they want to do when they do a project, we go online and just see who else is doing this and do they do we really need to be there let's go do something that needs our help and let's go out there and do this and the student does it completely 100 percent by themselves i hire mentors to work with them and they they support them but the mentors are trained to not do the work the mentors are trained to educate guide support but the student does all of the work on their own. And they even write press releases so they can get on radio shows like this and TV um, shows, and they get tons of press in the papers. And these are things that they can take and put on their application, just saying, I just received, like, for instance, my daughter, I think, was she was a feature story for 36 articles and made two magazine covers. She wrote that in one of her essays. That would definitely catch the attention of an admissions officer because it's outside of your school. It's outside of what's required. It's outside of your church. It's something that is that comes from your heart, and you really do stand out. Hmm. We're speaking with Suzanne Tatsui Darcy about uh, a book she's just uh, uh, published called Beat the College Admissions Game with Project Merit. Project Merit is something which she herself uh, created. Uh, how long ago did you create Project Merit? Back in the 90s. <laughs> So we've been doing it for a long time. I'm the, the, I founded a school called Merit Academy, and it's for accelerated students here in California. Now it's nationwide because we do one-on-one classes. And part of Merit Academy uh, requires students to do a project. Even though I just finished saying that it shouldn't be a project that you do at school, our projects are such that this, it's, it's not graded. It's something that students just do because they need to, to get into great colleges, and all of our kids do get into you know really top-tier colleges. But it's, it's a place for them to, to hone in on who they are, and that's why they, they, they all do individual projects themselves. It's not group projects. And they go out and get volunteers. Explain kind of how the process uh, works uh, for a given student with a given project. And, and I'm particularly curious to know how tricky it is to make sure that this remains the student's project and that you and your mentors, for instance, aren't exerting too much influence or guidance or giving, in a sense, too much assistance so it, in a sense, no longer belongs to the student the same way it would if it were just something they were doing completely on their own. Explain how that tricky matter is handled. That's a really good question because it's something that we do struggle with here because a lot of students start off with a project they're excited about, but you know, being 
13, 14, 15 years old, and being teenagers, they lose interest halfway through. So we have to really rally them back to focus on what the what their goal is. So we, we do a lot of pulling them back in and then also motivating them, just saying, oh, you were supposed to work on your website last week. How far did you get? And oftentimes they don't get anywhere. You know, So sometimes during the session they have to work with either me or one of the mentors. We've got like 50 mentors and one of our mentors, and they just work together. You know, And the mentor isn't doing the work, but the mentor is sitting there with them because without sitting there sometimes it takes students – a little push or a little umph to get them, you know, off their comfort zone, out of their comfort zone, and back into action um, to to work on that. That's a really good question. Another problem I have um, is that a lot of the parents get involved and they start doing things. Like I have a student who wanted to create an Uber for children, you know, because right now children can't call an Uber and take off, and he wanted to create this. And he was a business. He wanted to be a businessman, and he was in 11th grade, and we were laying out the whole plan, and he came up with this genius idea, and we laid it all out. We, when, I, when I say we, I mean I'm sitting there watching him do this, and each week I'd say, okay, we'll work on your logo, and he came back with a great logo, and I said, let's, let's figure out all the problems. You need to call the attorneys and find out you know, what's going on legally, you know, what's going to happen if there's a car accident. What if a kid says, take me to Disneyland instead of take me to school? What, you know, how, how do we protect parents from that? And to make sure that the uh, Uber drivers are, are safe with these children in the back seats. So we, he went through all of that and started doing this. And we laid out his app for the phone, and he started coding. And he's not a coder, but I had him work with one of my we call them college advisory specialists, one of our CASs, who was a mentor, and helped him design this. But then his father stepped in and just said, and he's Indian, and his dad says, well, I'm going to India next month. I'm just going to get one of my programmers in India to do it at a fraction of the cost, and we'll get done in a month. So his father took the project away from him and went to India, and it didn't get done in a month. It got done in 10 months, and it was too late for college admissions because his dad didn't understand what we are trying to do, and it demoralized the student. I mean, this kid who was so excited and thinking, I can go to college, but, you know, I might be able to pay for college myself because I think this is going to make money, and he had laid out the whole business plan. He was so excited. He had a sparkle in his eye, and he was really excited. And then after, I could see it. I just saw it right before me just change. He just transformed into this, you know, kind of dumpy little kid. And he just showed up at meetings and just say things like, oh, I don't I'd say, well, how's it going? You know, did, did he do this? Did they program that? Did they look at this problem that we're, we found? And he'd say, I don't know. He goes, I don't speak their language. And my dad isn't going to go there for another month, so we're not going to hear anything for at least a month. And it was, it was just a disaster. The student felt so badly about what was going on that he ended up not even applying to any of the colleges we were originally going to apply to. He ended up applying to community college and just kind of bowed out because he, he felt that he was cheating the system. The student did. So, yeah, so it's, it's really important to have kids do their own projects. And for me, my, I have two daughters, and my oldest daughter went to Stanford, and my youngest to Claremont McKenna College here in California, which is, is, is a wonderful college. And, and both of them did projects. And I was so grateful that they picked projects in an area where I don't have expertise because I'm not a scientist. My daughter's an ER doctor today, and my other daughter has her MBA from Northwestern. And she and the older daughter um, built a hydrogen fuel cell, and she was the first middle student, middle school student in the world to do so. And because I had no experience in that area, it was really great for me because I would just say, I don't know 
I don't know. I would take her to different events. They flew her to, you know, the, the Department of Energy flew her to D- Washington, D.C. And then all the adults would come to me because they'd see an adult standing there figuring I was controlling the project like it is in most schools, right? And I just, I, I said, I'm the driver. I'm the legal adult here, and I have no idea what the kids are doing. If you have questions, ask them. And it really empowered the students because they laughed at me. They said, oh, you don't know anything about chemistry. And I said, nope, I don't, and I don't care to. I want you to do it all. You talk talk to the press, you talk to all the um, engineers, and you figure out what you need to do. And the kids were able to stand on their own two feet and be really proud of who they, who they are or who they were at the time, which made all the difference in the world, you know, mm. in terms of their personal self-esteem. They had such confidence. And the cool thing about this, the parents who are listening may be interested in it, is that when kids have confidence because they are doing something that they know is wonderful, they know that the press is picking up on this, that must mean that I'm not just smart like my mom says or my dad says I'm cute. It's none of that. It's that the world outside is looking at what this kid is doing, and it makes them feel proud. And when they feel proud, they don't do drugs. They don't get involved in um, pre-whatever sex, you know, where they get pregnant in high school. They don't get involved in gang violence. These kids, I never hear of that happening. It's just because they feel really proud of who they are, they don't get themselves mixed up in those worlds. And that's something in itself that I would think parents would be interested in. Right. I want to be sure to talk about uh, a couple of projects that I found very, very impressive. And and I should mention that uh, people can go to uh, meritworld.com to read about some of the marvelous projects that have been created through Project Merit. Um, one of them th- that uh, my eyes just lit up is called ASL for Kids. And uh, this involves sign language and preschoolers. Can you say a quick word about this particular project? Yes, this is a girl who, who wanted, who, who had done some research learning that ASL, you know, American Sign Language, was really great for kids who can't speak. So, you know, when babies are frustrated and they cry and you don't know, was oh, it their diaper? Are they hungry? Are they, is there, you know, something bothering them? Um, the kids learn to sign, so they can say, I'm hungry. They can sign hungry. They can sign uh, diaper is wet, you know, for, for, for preschoolers or for babies, infants. But it's a great way for communication because kids don't have the verbal skills to describe and communicate with their parents. ASL is a wonderful medium, and it's also great for elders, too. Mm. You know, when people get older, they can't hear. You right, know. exactly. No, it's just... It's, it's ASL to communicate. Yeah, neat, neat way to kind of broaden that. I also really loved reading about uh, a project called Wash Up, W-A-S-H-U-P, which stands for Worthless Antibacterial Soap Harms Us Permanently. This is a really fascinating project, and uh, and just the name alone jumps out at us. Can you say a quick word about Wash Up? Yes, this is a student who wanted to stop people from using antibacterial soap. She actually did an experiment and showed with a, two Petri dishes, one with regular soap and one with her antibacterial soap, and she put bacteria in the dishes. And it didn't, and the antibacterial soap didn't kill more germs than the other, and yet it causes all kinds of other problems in the environment. So she went out and she actually converted all the public schools in her county to to go from antibacterial soap to regular soap, with notes that went home to all the families of these students that went to the schools to say stop buying antibacterial soap. So it was a huge coup for her, um, and she got into her top college with this project. Fascinating. And right, go ahead. 
I was going to say, and now I've got a student who is worried about the fires in California, and he um, he he lives really close to Paradise, which is a city that was completely um, demolished thanks to the um, fires from last year in 2018. So what he did was he engineered a device that looks like kind of like a balloon, a, a canister balloon, so that if a spark lands on the balloon or the canister, it's, it explodes with fire retardant that goes out 100 feet, so immediately snuffs out a spark so that the fire doesn't start off in an area where the fire department can't get to and grows into 20,000 acres and takes six months or two months to extinguish. He couldn't understand. He says, I don't understand why fires take so long to, 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 to you know, to, to contain. And he devises, he is in the process of doing this. He's actually speaking at our TED conference on September 15th. Fascinating. But that project is going to get him into all the major colleges because he is, he's 14 years old and he is just headstrong and in it and he's working with you know, our chemical engineers to devise this, you know, this process and they're doing experiments to see what works and what doesn't work and they're going to create the container and put it together and do, and do um, a, a demonstration to show people how it works and then they're going to, he's going to work with the fire departments in California, Cal Fire, and he's going to work with PG&E to help get this problem solved so that California doesn't you know, become the huge problem that it was last year. Right. So if people are intrigued by uh, Project Merit and feel like this might possibly be something that uh, could be helpful to, for instance, uh, one of their children or grandchildren, uh, to, to possibly have such a project uh, launched with the help of Project Merit, how do they get more information? Best way is to get the book, Beat the College Admissions Game with Project Merit. You can get that on Amazon. Another way you can do that if you don't, that's the, the least expensive. It's like $10 to get the book, and it leads you through all the steps from brainstorming to finding mentors to finding funds to, to pay for your project and then looking at how to write press releases and get the press you need so that you can show the colleges what you've done. Um, the other part is you can work with anybody here at Merit, so you can call Merit at Eight three one four six two five six five five, and we work with students all around the world to help them brainstorm and and complete a com- project. So we work with kids, and then we also have mentors all over the world who can help each student do different projects based on whatever whatever it is. So it's exciting, it's fun, and it's, it's it'll change your kids' lives. That's the thing that's the most empowering part about doing a project is, is they become independent, they become interesting people, they become people that colleges would want to admit to their colleges, but it, it changes the child, it changes the child and it gives them hope, it gives them some power, and it just prepares them to be really nice, wonderful, successful citizens. Hmm. Susan Tatsui Darcy is the creator of Project Merit, and again, the title of her book is Beat the College Admissions Game with Project Merit. Susan Tatsui Darcy, it was great to speak with you today on The Morning Show. Thank you so much. Thank you.